Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred Podcast, the international and New Zealand politics podcast, where we look at uh, things happening in New Zealand and the world, and try and give you a, a left-wing perspective on, on what exactly is going on. Uh, I'm here with my co-host Philip, as always. Philip, how are you going? Kia good. Um, safe inside, as the government demands. In my yep, in my right. in my camp bunk. <laughs> the nightmare is nearly over. Yeah, boarded up the doors and yeah, barred the windows. Hundred yeah. percent. And and the voice you're hearing is uh, a guest that we're very excited to have uh, on today, which is Derek Davison uh, of uh, numerous projects, uh, uh, foreign exchanges, <laughs> a fantastic Substack uh, uh, that that everyone should should read and subscribe to, uh, and a, a fantastic new podcast co-hosted with with Daniel Bessner who unfortunately was not able to be here today, uh, but uh, that does not take away from uh, the greatness of this podcast. American Prestige, um, a fantastic way to uh, get a sense of what's going on in the world, again, with with a perspective that you don't usually hear from the media. So we're very happy to have Derek here. Uh, Derek, how are you Thanks, guys. It's it's great to be here. I'm I'm going okay. We've got... uh, uh, I'm, I'm smoking some meat out in the backyard, so... Uh, we've got guests coming over later, so that that'll be nice. Oh, Hopefully, well, there you go. <laughs> is, for the New Zealand listeners, you know, this is a very important thing. This is a, a kind of preview of, of of life getting back to normal. Uh, you know, New Zealand is looking very enviously at, at how well the pandemic is going in, in the United States. I mean, the, the uh, enjoy. yeah, the, the meat sounds good, but the friends coming around later is what I'm well, smacking it, my lips at. <laughs> They're in-laws, so they're sort of in the bubble uh, already. So it's not like we're we're branching out or anything. But but uh, yeah, it'd be nice to have some some folks over. Yeah, well, you know, maintain the illusion. Uh, you know, <laughs> back home, people have been uh, stuck inside for for five six weeks now. So you know, they need something to to hold on to. Um, <laughs> But, we're having um, a rave we're having a rave in the backyard it's gonna be great <laughs> there we go there we go the meat rave <laughs> rave and barbecue the two things that go together <laughs> oh man uh, you know what i'm surprised that that doesn't happen more often uh, yeah, yeah that's really you know that could be a, a good match actually it's freedom right? <laughs> yeah. that's american exceptionalism <laughs> Well, look, uh, despite that, we did not uh, invite you over here uh, to tell us about your your meat dance parties, although, you know, again, no, fa- fascinating. Understood, uh, understood. Uh, we, we called you over here to talk about the, uh, you know, all the, all the various disasters that happen in the world uh, <laughs> at any given moment. Uh, <laughs> hard to pick which particular global meltdown to, to go with, but I think... Uh, you know, we want to start with uh, the situation in Afghanistan, which uh, is markedly different from from uh, how it was weeks ago. I think when when sort of the the media coverage tended to catastrophize um, and and kind of <laughs> really push for a reengagement of the United States uh, in Afghanistan, um, things are not quite that chaotic anymore. But I'm I'm curious, you know, to begin with. Can you give us a sense of what exactly has happened in Afghanistan uh, since it's kind of receded from our uh, collective attention spans? Um, well, I, I mean, you want to talk, you want to go back to the, just the end of the withdrawal, I guess, which was when everybody stopped caring that we were, <laughs> what was happening there. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I'm the, the Taliban has um, put together, I guess the, the main thing is the Taliban has put together an interim government. Um, it is not, 
perhaps as inclusive and moderate as they had uh, suggested it might be. Uh, it's mostly, at least at the very senior levels, mostly, you know, kind of died in the wool Taliban uh, personnel, senior commanders and whatnot. Um, they've taken, I mean, they've taken some international criticism for that. Uh, this is supposed to be an interim government. So there is the possibility uh, that they may include some some more folks at some point, but it it doesn't include any women. Uh, there's very little minority representation. There is some Tajik and Uzbek representation, for example, but there's like one uh, Hazara uh, person I think who's like a deputy health minister or something. If that, I maybe I, I I'm not entirely sure that's true. Um, so I mean, that's the big news. It looks like they're going to govern Afghanistan pretty much the way they governed it in the nineties with maybe a little more savvy about how to present that to the world, but there's going to be, you know, a lot of executions, a lot of limbs getting cut off, a lot of, you know, life will not be great for women. They've talked about restoring women's education. They've suspended uh, girls' secondary schools and uh, they say they'll reopen them when the time is right, which is pretty much what they did in the 90s as well. They never outright banned this, uh, that sort of thing, like girls' education. They just said, you know, it's not, it's not safe yet. We don't have the, you know, we don't have the security. We don't have it quite right yet. And they, they just never for five years, you know, got around to, to reopening the schools. Um, so, I mean, I think uh, overall life in, in Afghanistan is sort of returning to what it was pre 2001 in many respects. Uh, there has been, uh, you know, if you're concerned about people getting out of the country still, because there were some folks who didn't make it out in the airlift, um, there have been commercial flights coming in and out of Kabul, most of them chartered, but there, I think Pakistan airlines has reopened a, a semi-regular flight to and from. So people are able to, to kind of get in and out more, out, more out than in surprisingly, um, you know, as it may be. Um, the other consideration is the, the humanitarian one, um, Afghanistan's, foreign currency reserves have been frozen. The United States in particular has sort of led the way here. Uh, that's around $9 billion, I think, that could be used to finance imports of food, medicine, things things like that. Um, the U.S., the Biden administration has, has um, done what the United States typically does when it sanctions countries. It, it creates these uh, exemptions for humanitarian aid uh, that are never adequate to the task. There's sort of on paper uh, a way for the United States to say, hey, look, we're allowing food and uh, medicine into the country, even as we kind of cut uh, the target country in question off from the, the global financial system. Uh, so there's really, you know, the, the mechanisms by which you bring that sort of stuff into the country are, are shut off. Um, so there's a lot of concern about that. There is a great deal of concern from aid organizations, the folks who would be taking advantage of these exemptions if they could about how do you get aid into the country without, you know, putting your, your own employees at risk without potentially enriching the Taliban and, and, you know, making sure that it gets to people who need it. Um, so, I mean, those are the two things that, that have kind of dominated the, uh, the headlines. We can talk about the, the, um, I guess mistaken if you want to use the the Pentagon's terminology drone strike in Kabul if you want on the way out that's that's sort of 
uh, come and gone as a story. I think everybody lost interest in it after we left. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of what's happening in Afghanistan right now, I would say it's this sort of effort to get some kind of a governing apparatus going and uh, the, the deep concerns about critical, I mean, you know, people who were already in dire straits when uh, the United States was still there now being sort of, you know, really in dire straits because you add sanctions to, to the pressures of the war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exactly what people actually in Afghanistan had been predicting, right? It's only uh, the international media who seems surprised by some of these developments. Um, you talk to actual uh, people <laughs> I, on the ground and that's what they've all been saying is that they entirely expected a return to return to normal, if you want to use that phraseology, or like the bad old Taliban back. It's not... Um, it's not a fresh new face on a different organization. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you hear from people to the extent that we're actually talking to anybody in Afghanistan anymore, of course, yeah, as Bronco said, we're, we sort of lost interest, but um, the, you hear that, you know, that this is sort of, you know, not only was it expected, but to the extent that anybody was able to get reporting into parts of the country that were already under Taliban control, you know, months ago, uh, this is how they were they were governing those areas. Um, but the other thing that people will say is, at least there's not a war going. I mean, you know, th- there's been some restoration of order, even in Kabul, which was sort of the one place that the Afghan government, uh, pre-Taliban government, had some purchase. Um, even in Kabul, there's a sense, uh, uh, you know, I've seen in in uh, what reporting has there has been. Um, that that it's more orderly now. There's there's more stability with uh, with the war over and the Taliban in charge. Mm. Right, which is a huge concern for the the majority of the country, which is which is rural. Right. I mean, I, I think in these reports that we tend to hear about Afghanistan, both in New Zealand and and, and the United States, it's overwhelmingly uh, people in in cities like Kabul, uh, you know, in in, in, in urban areas. And we tend to to hear from that side of the population. We don't tend to hear from the people who have been threatened by, you know, uh, soldiers raiding their houses in the middle of the night, killing family members, right. bombing schools, and so on and so forth. Um, you um, mentioned the Anand, Anand Gopal, who writes for the New Yorker, was one of the few people who did really good reporting on this. And and uh, I mean, he's spoken with women in rural Afghanistan, women in particular, because you think, well, women are going to be the ones most most affected by this. Uh, but that's that's also a perspective that comes from basically limiting your your discussions to women in Kabul. Um, you know, he's talked to to women in rural Afghanistan who view the Taliban, if not, you know, as a good thing, as as the lesser of two evils in many cases. Why? Because you know, half their family got wiped out on a drone strike two years ago or something like that. Uh, and they all, all have stories like this. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a blinkered perspective. The, the, the perspective that we've had in the West has been uh, very limited. And some of the, um, some of the uh, alliances of convenience with local warlords and, you know, yeah, U.S. air support enforcing, quote unquote, Afghani um, military. Right. That's that's not a cohesive state. Like that was never a, a nation building project that you can add up to make a functioning kind of organization. That's not, that's not a set of institutions that's going to settle down over two decades as it turns out. And sure enough, like the wall was pulled down over, over our eyes for that period of time. I mean, there was that like blistering um, Washington post 
report a couple of years ago, right? That basically predicted right. a lot of this. Right. And just what happened, right? The blob went back to blobbing. Uh, yeah, even the Washington Post went back to, you know, yeah. writing. It was, I mean, that was, a, that was a shocking thing. And I think everybody did it because it, um, it, it just didn't sink in, I guess. But the Post in, in 2019, late 2019, did this uh, big expose that basically said everything that the Pentagon or the U.S. government have been telling us about the course of the war in Afghanistan was a lie. Uh, and they knew it was a lie. They've known they they had known the entire time, uh, and then we all just went right back to this sort of reporting what the Pentagon was saying about Afghanistan, even in the Washington Post, uh, which is sort of remarkable. But it, I mean, it happened. I don't blame them because it happened to everybody. But uh, we did kind of memory hole that very quickly, only to remember uh, when the the collapse happened last month. That oh yeah, wait a minute, somebody you know told us this two years ago but uh you know well, that's how favorite, it goes i guess my, my favorite part of that uh that that release was that there were people who you can you can search all this the washington post is a searchable database of, of various officials um saying these things privately and in some of those people as the u.s was pulling out were then on tv saying no no no, we have to stay in there there was the war was going great you know it, it's better than yeah yeah it was the 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 war was going great is a wonderful like the the number of people who went on cable TV and went in the newspaper and said, you know, this is a manageable conflict. We only had twenty five hundred soldiers. We haven't had casualties in months. Um, it was such a stupid talking point. First of all, you ask the question, manageable for whom? Uh, was it manageable for the Afghan people to continue on like that? I don't I don't know that that's true. Um, but the 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 talking point about the the lack of casualties was particularly dumb because the Taliban had stopped attacking American forces specifically because the Trump administration said we're leaving. If you had turned around and said, "Well, actually, we're going to leave these guys here indefinitely," the attacks would have started again, and there would have been U.S. casualties. It's just uh, you know, it's sort of like. I, the, I think that I mean, I, part of the discourse, the foreign policy discourse in the U.S. at least is, is based on fundamentally a contempt for the audience. You just assume nobody. I mean, you, they're rubes. You, you assume they're not going to know uh, any better and they're not really going to think too hard about it. And so you just say whatever, you know, uh, you think will sound good. And, and that's you know, that was such a great example of it. Yeah, and and the the plight of women and girls, which is which is serious, and you know not something to to be scoffed at. But that was one of these things that was used. I mean, I, we have uh, there was a WikiLeaks release years ago um, where the CIA talked about how uh, basically using you know the the, the cause of, of Afghanistan's uh, women and girls could be used as a way to sell the war to uh, the, the French specifically. Uh, the you know the the CIA thought the French would be particularly. Um, kind of uh, 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 seduced by this argument. And obviously that's being used here as well. But I think what, what people don't realize, or I think what has been downplayed in a lot of the coverage is that, um, yes, obviously there were improvements for uh, women's rights. Um, but but again, that was a very, very uh, select and focused. It tended to be right in the same urban areas uh, the, that we're talking about in the rest of the country things for, for women were not that much better or really that much different um, uh, since the Taliban were, were removed from power, right? Well, I mean, I think in, in areas, 
And this is where you get into sort of, we don't really know. We, we don't, we never really knew what was happening on the ground, but in areas that were under uh, the control of the Afghan government, the Western supported Afghan government, I think uh, there were improvements for women. I mean, there was education, there were educational opportunities, there were job opportunities um, that didn't exist. Mostly that was in urban areas, but there was, there were some, rural areas where you know there there was you know the government was to some degree in control that uh, did see improvements for women the problem was uh you know how much of the country was actually in the government's control we don't really know i mean there were these figures that were thrown around like 70% of the country is in government control well that's i mean uh you know that means the cities are in government control and we assume like the places that aren't uh being ruled by the taliban that we know are you know aren't being absolutely ruled by the Taliban, we just sort of assume the government's in control. It's not really uh, the case, uh, and and you know, yeah, in the in the places where the Taliban hung on to power and and as it expanded over the last couple of years, um, you know, the conditions went right back to to what they were. Um, even in the areas where there may have been some improvement for women in some ways, in specific ways, you know, education and employment in particular. Um, you have to weigh that against the fact that they're bearing the brunt of the war. I mean, you know, they got to worry about every sound overhead could be a drone coming to to strike their town or their village. And, uh, you know, their men could be caught up in the conflict at any time. I mean, you have to you have to balance uh, the pluses and minuses. And I think for a lot of women in rural Afghanistan, especially the minuses outweighed the, the pluses. I mean, or, or at least we have to consider the possibility that they did. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, obviously, I mean, the Taliban doesn't seem overwhelmingly popular in Afghanistan. It's not it's not like there's been a huge groundswell of support. That's like a positive right. affirmation of the values of the Taliban. Right. How bad does an occupying force have to be that that's the logical kind of turning turning point? Right. After 20 years. I mean, is is liberal? Well, interven- I mean, this was an argument. Interventionism? Like, I mean, it- yeah, this is an argument that people made while the occupation was going on, that you're giving the Taliban uh, a cause, you're giving them a justification uh, as the sort of defenders of Afghanistan, the national defenders and, and liberators in some sense uh, of Afghanistan. And if you leave, uh, that dynamic goes away. And, and yeah, fundamentally, uh, there's no evidence that the Taliban ideologically uh, is popular in Afghanistan or that, that there's like a groundswell, a massive groundswell of Afghan people who want to live under that system. Um, what there does seem to have been pretty clearly was a large segment of the population that preferred the Taliban to the United States, basically. Uh, now that that's not a factor anymore, and this is something that'll play out over, you know, who knows how long, months, years. Um, but it, 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 it will be an interesting dynamic, I think, to watch what happens with uh, without uh, assuming we stay out, I guess I'm, I'm sort of assuming that uh, we don't go back. I'm assuming that this over the horizon capability that Biden keeps talking about isn't going to turn into weekly drone strikes on, uh, you know, cars and civilian parking lots. Um, you know, so assuming that that we leave well enough alone, it would be interesting to see uh, what happens. Certainly. The case of the, you know, the 90s is is instructive in that there was never a time where the Taliban didn't ha- weren't facing some kind of a resistance. Uh, they seem to have stronger control over the country now, if anything, than they did then. 
um, which, you know, again, kind of makes you wonder what the last 20 years have been about. Um, but, you know, it, it will be interesting to see what what sort of opposition emerges because something will emerge. It's not going to be this pan sheer valley resistance front, but it'll be something. Well, and, and they've fled the country at this point, right? The uh, the, the resistance. Sort of <laughs> up this is yeah. Just in the last day or so, I saw something. They they fled. Uh, um, Ahmed Masood, the son of the uh, legendary Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Masood, and um, uh, Saleh, the former vice president, have fled. I think to Tajikistan. Uh, and now they're talking about getting together, like get, getting the band back together uh, in essence with, uh, you know, some of the warlords, some people from Ashraf Ghani's government, not Ghani himself, who's living cushy exile in the UAE now. Um, maybe some, you know, whatever elements of the the military, uh, the former military officer corps still, still are around uh, and putting together like a government in exile. Oh my um, God. That, that would certainly, I mean, that would certainly fuel the possibility of of an extended conflict or a renewal of conflict mm-hmm. um i i my question would be where are they going to go i don't know that the tajik government is particularly interested in hosting uh, the afghan government in exile so uh you know just as a basic thing i wonder where they would set up shop to uh, to mm-hmm. sort of do this but um the, uh, you know once once you yeah right i mean it is a good we have fashion <laughs> Uh, now we have the Northern Alliance. Yeah, no, it's with And I, I mean, mean, if you want to, if you want to pitch your case to the CIA for help or to the the Pentagon for uh, uh, for aid, having a, an organization like that, you know, gives you some credibility. So maybe I don't know. Do you um, do you put any store by these recent stories about kind of factionalism within the Taliban? Like externally, I think you're right. Like it looks like they've got a pretty clean kind of slate in in Afghanistan militarily. But internally, there have been a few stories. Like I saw something in Al Jazeera. Right. I think in terms of that's like, the one that really gave me pause. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how well sourced that is, but I mean, there's there's a couple of things here. the 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 idea of factionalism emerging again once you take away the external enemy uh, that that sort of galvanizes everybody and unites everybody is. Um, you know, it's almost seems, you know, almost like an inevitability that you're going to have parties emerging uh, within the Taliban who will, you know, favor one course of action over another. In this case, it's sort of the uh, the the softy politicians, I guess, or the guys from the Doha, uh, you know, peace team or negotiating team versus the, the guys who are on the ground doing the fighting. Um, I, it, it seems almost inevitable that some, that, that sort of thing would emerge within an, an organization that's really is, um, I think lacking in cohesion as the Taliban has been, um, again, with the exception of having this uniting kind of, you know, enemy to rally around. Um, on the other hand, I didn't, I wasn't buying a lot of it in, in sort of Western media, cause it seemed like wishful thinking, um, you know, the stories about, uh, Baradar being dead, which turned out to be false, that didn't lend a whole lot of credibility to the uh, to the reporting. The one thing that the, the thing that gave me the most pause was the story you just mentioned, the, the one in Al Jazeera, because if there's going to be any media outlet that has a line into the Taliban to get, you know, the, the, the dirt, the scoop, basically, um, it's probably Al Jazeera, given the, the relationship between the Qatari government and the Taliban over the last few years. 
So the fact that they reported it and it was original reporting, it wasn't like taken from, you know, another outlet uh, makes me think there may be something to it. How much I, I it's hard to say. Mm. So jury's out on maybe the, the future stability of the country, at least for now, but uh, especially as you say, with the, the U.S. continuing to assert the right to just bomb and, and send people <laughs> uh, to assassinate anyone uh, wherever it wants in the world. Anyone, anywhere, um, anytime. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's under, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the Biden administration. Who knows when we get the uh, Donald Trump Jr. administration or whatever we're getting, <laughs> getting in, in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the Malia Obama administration somewhere down the line. That'll uh, that'll <laughs> pick up. That'll pick everything up. Yeah. Well, she actually seems ask- okay for for somebody who grew up in that environment. But yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, to, to ask you like, a, a very big uh, picture question here. You know, what does this mean? This withdrawal mean for U.S. strategy, you know, uh, and foreign policy? Because uh, I think a lot of people have. Uh, made a lot of hay out of the withdrawal and for good reason, you know, it's, it's the end of this horrific 20 year war, uh, this pointless waste of, of life and, and, and resources. Um, yeah. At the same time, the United States is not really backing off uh, the war on terror uh, framework. It's still that that's very much continuing and if anything, ramping up. Um, so what does this actually mean for foreign policy? I mean, like what exactly beyond the, the self-evident, uh, uh, the ending of, of, like I say, this pointless uh, waste of, of, of American lives and, and, and money. What was the thinking behind the, the withdrawal and what is it going to mean for what the U.S. does uh, you know, on the world stage from here on out? Um, I mean, if it, the grand strategy has been for you know, a decade now to to do this pivot to China and pivot to Asia. And I think um, you can look at that in a couple of ways that you have the sort of true believers who really think that, that China is emerging as the new great power threat to the United States and needs to be countered um, at all costs or, or whatever. Um, and you can look at it from the perspective of, uh, what gets you the most money in the Pentagon, you know, jammed into the Pentagon budget uh, that'll go to defense contractors. And I think there the, the idea is to keep the parts of the war on terror that work, the surveillance, the drones, um, as you say, the right to, you know, knock off anybody anywhere, anytime, because we feel like it. Um, those things aren't going to go away, but at the same time, we're going to try to make this um, adjustment in in the main. The main enemy is no longer going to be terrorism; it's going to be China, and that gets you into a whole range of cool defense possibilities in terms of new submarines, new uh, you know new new surface vessels, new aircraft, all kinds of things, even upgrading, modernizing. So, you know, quote unquote, modernizing the nuclear uh, arsenal to the tune of probably a trillion or more dollars over the next 10 years. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, the pivot to Asia is the main strategic thing going on here. There's less value um, and, and given the fatigue uh, among the American public, I think less ability to sell conflict in the Middle East um, as a vital 
national interest and and the game is now you know further east and uh, in the pacific and in the indo-pacific as we're calling it yeah yeah how does that work as a um without a hot war in east asia essentially right if it's meant to be a money hole for the military industrial complex where's that where's all that going to go well i mean I, I think a lot of it will go to um building weapons like i mean you know as i said modernizing the nuclear arsenal um you know building submarines AUKUS if, if uh, you know maybe we'll talk about that um you know obviously a huge deal for for american weapons manufacturers to get a contract to build nuclear submarines for for australia um it's interesting i don't i don't know i mean i don't buy the cold war framing anyway i think it's um it just completely misunderstands the u.s china relationship um there aren't two separate systems going on here. There aren't two separate economies or two separate worlds. The US and China are joined at the hip, basically, like economically, um, which makes it a much different dynamic than what we saw during the the actual Cold War in the uh, in the 20th century. Um, So I, you know, I I don't, I don't know, really, frankly, what what's going to play out the possibility of a hot conflict happening somewhere. Um, is I mean I I don't think you can discount it. We've had near misses like the the uh, dust up on the China India border that could have very easily turned into something quite bad. Um, you know, so I think there there are possibilities for conflicts to break out, especially you know, and now that we've brought into India into the uh, this with the Quad and the um, you know changing the designation from the Pacific region to the Indo Pacific region, which was basically just to kind of loop India into the conflict. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 it's a really different kind of rivalry and I don't, I don't yet kind of have a good handle on how, how it's going to settle out, uh, particularly not with climate change looming on the horizon. And, and, um, that, that seems more important than anything else. It's going to upend, um, you know, whatever plans we have for, for, for a you know eighty year rivalry with China are, are going to be I think interrupted by the need to respond to climate change and the need to do so collaboratively. You can't do it. Uh, you know you can't. I don't think you can maintain this rivalry. Uh, much as the Biden administration keeps talking about how we can do both, I don't think you can do both. I don't think you can maintain a rivalry with China and deal with uh, global challenges like climate change. Mm. I, I think it's worth noting as well on the uh, on the point about um, you know possible nuclear conflict uh, in in the fifties. Uh, we, we know now that um, uh, U.S. military officials were uh, advising basically to nuke China um, if anything happened over Taiwan. You know, if China tried to to invade or if if uh, a war broke out between them. Um, right. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's any reason to believe that those people are, are any or the people now in charge are any less <laughs> insane than the ones <laughs> who were around in the 1950s, unfortunately. Um, so I think that's that's worth. Uh, yeah, Ty- I mean, Taiwan is one of these things like it could very easily become a flashpoint in a in a almost World War One sense. Uh, like, I don't think anybody in either China or the United States wants to go to war over Taiwan. You know, they don't want World War III over Taiwan. Yet 
there is this incentive to sort of keep pushing uh, against the other side and, and see how far you can go before somebody reacts. And that, that can lead to things that, that spiral out of control. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and speaking of spiraling out of control and nuclear conflict, uh, as, as, as terrible as these things are to discuss, I think it is important, especially in the context of New Zealand, we have a longstanding anti-nuclear policy. Uh, and yet, uh, the AUKUS, which you mentioned, um, you know, perhaps, will, uh, if not challenge that, at least complicate it, because uh, now there is a prospect of, of nuclear-powered submarines uh, in, in uh, one of our closest neighbors, one of our most important neighbors, Australia. Um, I, do you want to just give us a, a, a brief rundown of what exactly is AUKUS and, and its significance in the, in the, the grander scheme of, of uh, you know, the geopolitics, this, this competition between the US and China? And uh, maybe just give us a sense of some of the, the, the diplomatic effects that this has had, uh, the, the, this deal that's been struck, because obviously sure. there was a loser uh, in this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was. There was a loser. Um, <laughs> so August is, is, you know, this new alliance that, that uh, has been announced between uh, the U.S., uh, Australia and the U.K., um, mainly the, the main uh, exchange at this point seems to be. Uh, Australia will um, get some swanky new nuclear-powered submarines uh, out of the arrangement. The United States will get uh, expanded basing rights in northern Australia to, to rotate aircraft in and out. There's probably, there will almost certainly be more to come. I think, um, you know, the Australians are interested in buying new missiles. The United States is undoubtedly interested in uh, further expanding its rights to sort of use Australia as a staging point. Um, so there will be more to come, but that sort of seems to be the initial exchange. Um, the, the diplomatic fallout has been mostly from France, uh, as you say, the, the loser in this exchange. Um, the Chinese government has sort of, uh, they haven't entirely let it pass. I mean, they issued a statement, you know, about um, kind of warning that these countries were only hurting themselves and, uh, you know, kind of diplomatic, you know, boiler, boilerplate type stuff. Uh, but France, uh, one of one of its largest defense firms, uh, Naval Group, had a contract worth at least 40 billion dollars. I've seen estimates that it could have gone as high as like 90 to 100 billion uh, to build a fleet of new diesel-powered submarines uh, for Australia. That contract has now been torn up. Uh, this was characterized by officials in the French government as a stab in the back and a betrayal uh, of France, which is sort of absurd. I mean, uh, it shows, I think, it shows how much um, these relationships are based on purely monetary corporate concerns and, and how important... Uh, when you get down to the bottom line, it really is the bottom line. What's France's interest in uh, the South Pacific? Well, it's selling weapons. It's making money. Uh, just like, I mean, just like, you know, leaving aside the uh, the idea of, you know, China as the new great threat. What's What this is about is an arms deal. It's, it's about making money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the French government is sort of uh, retreated and withdrew its ambassadors from the U.S. and Australia. At one point, I think uh, they've agreed to send at least the ambassador to the U.S. back to Washington. I don't know about Australia. Um, 
and they, you know, they've sort of been howling and simultaneously uh, asking existential questions like, are we not a great power anymore? And sort of, you know, <laughs> no, actually you're not, but uh, whatever. It's been a while. Uh, it's wake like up, a lot, yeah. A, a lot a of century. European governments are, are coming to that conclusion lately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it's been a wake up call. I think the Trump administration and the sort of disdain that he had for Europe, the open disdain, um, was viewed as an aberration. But now that he's gone and, and Biden is in office and Biden, you know, represented a return to a status quo U.S. foreign policy. But it's clear, uh, I think it's pretty clear that although he puts a nicer face on it, there is still fundamentally a disdain for Europe and, and the U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, because it just isn't, uh, these, these countries aren't that relevant. I called them on uh, the uh, our show on American Prestige a couple of weeks ago, I called them middle managers of uh, the U.S. <laughs> empire, uh, which I think is pretty, pretty correct. Um, and, you know, that's their status. And I think there's sort of a, a dawning realization uh, of that. And it, uh, some of it has to do with Brexit and sort of, you know, the U.K. is having its own, I think, rude awakening to the fact that it doesn't uh, it's not really that relevant anymore. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of, you know, hurt feelings and questions, I think on, on, the, uh, on France's part that will be, I'm sure pacified through some exchange of money at some point, you know, through <laughs> whatever means. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's sort of the basics. I mean, uh, uh in terms of the Alliance. Yeah. It's, it's uh, funny. It sort of comes, uh, full circle because in New Zealand, I don't know how much you know about the New Zealand relationship with anti-nuclear policy. But um, just prior to 87, when we brought in our um, anti-nuclear legislation, the uh, bombing of the Rainbow Warrior was obviously a, a French uh, intelligence terrorist attack, essentially, in Auckland Harbour. Right. Um, yeah. So we've had a kind of fraught relationship with France re-nuclear issues for 30 plus years. Uh, it's funny to, that to come back kind of full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The more things change, yeah. By doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, it is, a, I saw an interesting idea, which was uh, to, to pacify France by including them in the agreement, like making it a four-way agreement and uh, bringing the French government in, which would, uh, if we're talking about the nuclear question, uh, would open up the possibility of using French nuclear reactor designs in these new submarines. And the French, Reactor design uses uh, low enriched uranium, whereas uh, U.S. submarine reactors use weapons grade uranium. So uh, they're a much bigger concern from a proliferation standpoint, from you know just having uh, having these things kind of sitting around. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I it's that seems like it, it could be a win win because it would get the French to stop whining, maybe. Uh, and it would also uh, it would also make these submarines a little bit less dangerous from a from a nuclear perspective. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Uh, these submarines are not they're not launching or not capable of launching nuclear weapons. That's not what's being discussed. But I have yeah. seen a suggestion that oh well, I guess that's not what what officially is 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 they're not right. they're not ballistic missile submarines. They're attack submarines. But yeah, my I mean my understanding of naval weapons technology is not the, the greatest, but I, I'm, I believe you can launch 
uh, in theory, you could launch a, a cruise missile. I mean, you can launch cruise missiles from attack submarines and you could launch in theory, a nuclear tipped uh, cruise missile yeah. from, from an attack submarine. So they're not, they're not intended to be armed with nuclear weapons, but it's, it's um, in it's theory, I think it, it could still, yeah, it could still be done. Well, and the other thing I read was that, uh, because this is not, you know, it's not nuclear weapons uh, officially that, that that's being discussed here. Um, the I, I believe it, this doesn't have to uh, be in any way overseen by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, um, and actually they can they can bring in an, a, a tremendous amount of of uh, nuclear material uh, more so than they would be able to otherwise. Um, if it was done, you know, supposedly for weapons purposes, right? Is, is that is that correct? Right. There, there's a carve out. And again, this is, this is something my, I mean, my, my detailed understanding of this is not great, but um, the, the gist of it is that like the, the non-proliferation treaty um, explicitly says that all states have the right to use nuclear power for, for civilian purposes. Um, it, you know, it, it makes it quite clear that it, it's only dealing with weaponization. Um, there are carve outs in the NPT, or there is a, a carve out in the NPT for nuclear material used militarily, but used not in a, not directly in a weapon. So something like a, a submarine reactor, um, is, yeah, there's sort of a blind spot and, and there've been people who've called for, I've seen, you know, calls for this to be, uh, fixed in fact. Um, but there is sort of a blind spot in um, the IAEA NPT regime that oversees uh, nuclear material for precisely this kind of use, something like a, a submarine reactor. Mm. Which is interesting because I, I feel like if, say, this was something Iran was doing, um, there would be widespread talk and, and, and suspicion, you know, on the US side or the Australian side that this is a cover uh, to covertly start some sort of uh, you know nuclear program or to or to, to advance a nuclear program rather, and I imagine you know the Chinese officials are probably looking at this and going, "Hey, you know, what if this is exactly what's happening under our noses?" Um, yeah, uh, certainly you're you're right. If if Iran decided, if Iran announced tomorrow that hey, we're going to build nuclear submarines. Um, you know, it would be a, a matter of hours before the bombing started, probably. Um, it, it would absolutely be seen as cover for, for something else. I mean, the, the Iranians enriched a small amount of uranium recently, fairly recently in the last few months, uh, to 60%, uh, which is not far in terms of the amount of work, work you have to do to get it to weapons grade. It's not that far. And yet, you know, to have it parked at 60% verified by the IAEA, uh, to make that weaponizable, you would have to have like a mountain of the stuff to, to get the right kind of reaction. Um, but even that was was taken as sort of like, oh, my God, they're weaponizing. They're, they're, they're going for a nuclear weapon. Um, you know, there were murmurs of that. And like, see, they're flaunting, you know, they're flaunting all the, the, the rules here. Um, so, yeah, for, for any country that's not on the approved list <laughs> to say we're going to have nuclear submarines now would be absolutely viewed that way. And it wouldn't be surprising if, if uh, that's how it's being viewed, at least in some quarters in China. And I wouldn't blame them for, for doing so. Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, in terms of, I was going to say, in terms of uh, nuclear powers in general, denuclearization or 
uh, getting to zero nukes or however you want to uh, think about it. It's, it's sort of become a bit of an awkward uh, shibboleth, I guess, recently, because how do you, how do you argue on a kind of geostrategic level that small at threat nations shouldn't be trying to enrich? I mean, if you look at North Korea versus Libya in the last uh, decade, yeah. it's clear what the right path is. If I was a small nation under threat, that's the first thing I would be doing now, having watched the development of US foreign policy. And I mean, ideally, like what we need to be arguing just for the sake of humanity, I think, I hope, hope that doesn't sound too utopian, is we need to bring nukes down to zero from developed nations as fast as possible, or to a degree that allows humanity to continue to exist without constant near accidents, right? Um, um, but it's te- it's terrifying that that is the logical <laughs> point of view, right? Yeah, yeah, and it, it is. I, I mean, I think I agree with you. The 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 right thing for human civilization globally is to do away with these things the you know the uh, but you know I, I have no idea how you would how you would you can't even i mean you can't even convince like the israeli government to join a a, a plan for a, a non-nuclear middle east which you know they, they this they're concerned they're so concerned about iran developing a nuclear weapon the iranians have offered to you know to uh, participate in in a diplomatic process like that uh for many years now and and you know there's no way that's ever going to happen uh well, let well, alone well, how you would convince the united states or russia or, or china to give up their nukes and yet uh, you know while that's the best course of action as long as these things are going to exist if you're a small country that's in the crosshairs of the united states you you absolutely should be developing a nuclear weapons capability, maybe not weapons themselves, um, but but the idea, you know, the the ability to manufacture them in reasonably short order. Sure, it's it's entirely you know a, a, a reasonable calculus. Why would Israel uh, join that 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 kind of treaty though? Because it doesn't have any nuclear weapons. There's no need. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yes, you're right. You're right. They don't have any. Yes. Well, you know, I. Fall of civilization, destruction of the entire world, uh, big big issues. But, you know, we in New Zealand would like to believe that, that we're off in the corner of the world, that we will be unaffected by this while everyone else is blowing everyone else up. We're sort of calmly sitting there going, we're, we're fine. Uh, we're going to survive. <laughs> Just sitting there waiting for the cloud of fallout to come over. <laughs> exactly. Putting, exactly. Uh, putting our nuclear jackets on for the nuclear winter. Right, right. You know, the, right. The, the question, I guess, for, for New Zealanders in that case is, uh, are we now... Uh, potentially in the crosshairs because if if australia is potentially a a target um uh, of, of any sort of nuclear conflict um does that now have a knock-on effect on new zealand um given that you know we're not we're not super geographically close to australia but i think we're close enough that that um i i wouldn't uh be relaxed about a nuclear strike uh, on the on i mean the country. i i think it's even more direct than that in the sense that um you know as as people try to figure out and it's only been uh, a few days really but as people try to figure out what the kind of geostrategic importance of the of alcus is going to be i mean i've seen uh you know speculation that it's going to become like an adjunct to the the quadrilateral lateral security dialogue which includes australia japan and, and india and the united states um or that it's going to be you know that it's going to sort of bring the uk 
into that orbit somehow. Um, and, and my feeling is it's more likely to lead to uh, calls to strengthen the Five Eyes Alliance. Um, you have three of the five members now going past just intelligence sharing and into direct defense support or defense contracting. Um, and I, I, you know, I feel like it's not that much to get from there to pushing for Canada and New Zealand to do maybe, you know, not, not at the level of nuclear armed or nuclear powered submarines, maybe, but to, to expand that alliance to something more than just intelligence sharing. And in a way that, um, you know, makes it more directly relevant to the, the China, the U S China, whatever it is, cold war rivalry, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting dilemma for New Zealand as well, because we've, we've tried very hard to not uh, lean in too far on, on any one side in this. Uh, and we, you know, I, I think that's the right strategy. You don't want to, uh, I think, take either the US's or, or China's side. Um, and yet you can't, you can't alienate uh, 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 either of them really in the position New Zealand's in. So I guess it's, it's a dilemma going forward about what exactly New Zealand's posture is. And, and as you suggest, there may come a moment where uh, we may have to decide um, and it may come very abruptly. Right. But also I in agree. terms of uh, the Five Eyes Alliance, it's interesting. It makes me uh, wonder how long this has been kind of simmering um, with the Labour government, because our uh, Labour government here and our Foreign Affairs Minister, Nanaya Mahuta, reasonably recently, I think about six months ago, was kind of um, ruminating on the future of the Five Eyes and was saying we need to consider Five Eyes as a as a um, an intelligence and security alliance and then was sort of pressed on what that was and she said oh it needs to be limited to intelligence sharing is what I'm saying so these <laughs> these discussions are, are right. obviously ongoing but it's somebody's yeah. having them yeah there's sort of a Freudian slip going on there <laughs> yeah 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 exactly so it does it makes me wonder I mean. New Zealand has this kind of faux progressive uh, self-delusion where we think we're this independent actor on the world stage with a principled foreign policy um, that's not affected by our largest trading partner and the most powerful military uh, in the world. But <laughs> clearly that's never been the case. But this, like, this nuclear uh, kind of vibes check recently is really reinforcing that, I think. Mm. Well, I think the, to take it back to Afghanistan, I mean, the Afghanistan war really... Uh, showed exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, we quite happily signed on to that, even though the, you know, it was a, it was a stupid war uh, and it had very little to do with us uh, in New Zealand. And yet to be part of the team, we, we had to go along with this imperial misadventure uh, that, that, you know, it took us 20 years to realize what a, right. what a catastrophe it was. Well, um, Look, uh, I I would love to, to talk to you for another hour, uh, you know, about uh, th there's so many things to cover. You know, I wish we could have gone into the the, the very small uh, subject, uh, Derek, of, 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 you know, how how we should even look and, and interpret China and its actions on the world stage and, and what sort of our posture should be. Oh, yeah. Of. Just a tiny, tiny yeah. issues. Yeah. We could have wrapped it up maybe issues. in 10 minutes, but uh, maybe we'll leave it for, for another episode. But, you know, yeah, I, definitely. Uh, well, well, you know, thank you so much again for, for coming on. And I wonder, you know, do you have any final sure. thoughts you want to leave us with, uh, you know, given given all this that we've discussed and what's happening in the world, this sort of 
uh, movement towards a, a new Cold War? Um, you know, is there anything you want to kind of leave us with uh, about that? Um, I mean, I, I leave every, every consider all the considerations I have these days in terms of like, what's coming, um, you know, what can, what can we can expect for the next, over the next 20 years or more? Um, it's all about climate change and I don't know what to do about it. I don't think there's any impetus really. I mean, you, you hear these very depressing things from comments from, uh, even people like John Kerry, who's the Biden administration's climate, whatever czar, I don't know what it is, uh, about, you know, being saved by magical technology that doesn't exist yet, but definitely will. We don't know what it is, but it'll save us. Um, I, I don't think we I don't think we have a handle on what to do. And I don't think we have the will to do what's needed, which is to stop burning everything. I mean, it's certainly to stop burning coal like today uh and to stop burning oil and gas pretty soon uh i don't think we have the will to 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 do that and it's um we're already i mean we're already seeing the effects of it we're already seeing the effects in in some parts of the world especially around the mediterranean um that's going to dominate everything so if you're worried about the cold war with china i would say the chances that that's going to be the overwhelming story in foreign policy or international affairs uh, for the rest of this century are, are, are fairly slim. It's it's much more likely to be climate change, which I don't say in a cheery way, because I think it's going to be worse. I think that climate change is uh, going to be much worse than what a Cold War with China would look like. But uh, that's that's what I think is going to be the overarching uh, challenge. Oh, that's great. That's uh, that's that's the note that we leave most of our podcasts in. Is, uh, don't worry. Actually, things will be worse. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep our fingers crossed for a cold war with China. Yeah, let's hope for the cold war. Because if if we if we have the if we have the the ability to to engage in an entirely manufactured cold war with China. Uh, that would be for show. It would be for defense money. It would be for, you know, it would be uh, of choice. It would be a Cold War of choice. Uh, if we have the ability to do that, then it must mean everything else is okay. I, I, the, I, I would look, hope. It's just it another that aspect else is okay. of uh, the 90s being back because it's the East Coast, West Coast rapper rivalry <laughs> of the future, right? It's confected. It's entirely for commercial purposes. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, if, if we, if we do that, if we, you know, can, are able to sustain that, it must mean we've solved climate change. COVID hasn't mutated into, you know, something that, that kills on contact. Uh, there's no, there haven't been any other pandemics. So it must mean we've taken care of the big stuff and we, we can, you know, we have time to, to mess around in these sorts of uh, trivialities, I guess. Optimism, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, uh, look, thanks again for, for coming on. Uh, it's been really great. Uh, again, everyone sure, should Thanks out. for having me. Oh, of course, of course. Um, foreign exchanges on Substack, uh, you know, one of the most informative places you can get your, your, your news and analysis of, of, of world events. Uh, American Prestige, hugely entertaining and, and interesting podcast. You'll learn, you'll laugh. Uh, I've done both those things, listening to it, so, so you can too. Uh, we want to thank again Derek Davison uh, for, for coming on, and uh, and hopefully we will we'll have him on to, to solve more of the world's crises. Uh, you know, some, Absolutely, sometime. yeah, that's what I'm good at. I'm good at <laughs> I'm good at explaining what they are. I don't know how good I am at solving them, but uh, we <laughs> can do another downer show anytime. Great, great. Well, and and if depress you depress your listeners. Up, uh, 
<laughs> if, you, if you liked what you hear, heard, uh, definitely uh, throw some of your money there, their way uh, on, on the Patreon or on the Substack. And of course, if you like what you heard here as well, if you want to hear more stuff like this uh, in the New Zealand media, um, we would appreciate your support as well. Uh, you know, like, share, subscribe, all that stuff that everyone says at the end of every video or podcast. Do all of that for, for everyone involved here. Um, until uh, next week, this will this will be us for one of two hundred. So thank you again. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is a lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. Hey